0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want to check out my company, check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. The co host we have again tonight, Brad and Kerry Hoppy from Muskie Mayhem Tackle. If you want to know more about their company, check out muskiemayhemtackle.com. Our guest this evening is going to be Rob Manthei, who primarily fishes in the northern Wisconsin area, but I know Rob also does some fishing in Canada, so we'll get his thoughts on things. But in the meantime, hey, Brad, Kerry, how are you guys doing today?
1: Doing great, Jeff. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Not too bad at all. It's Wednesday, Wednesday before another show coming up here quickly. So lots to do as per usual.
2: Yeah, for the most part, I mean, we're going to be represented in PA, the John Betty self booth. Our work is done for that show. So the next show for us, I think we still got like four weeks for the Minnesota Muskie
0: Expo. I'm kind of jealous. I wish I had four weeks to the Minnesota Muskie Expo, but instead we'll...
2: You do. You do have four weeks until the Minnesota
0: Muskie Expo. I mean, you're not... You're just
2: not going to utilize them the way you should.
0: (laughs) You're not wrong. I mean, I'm not (laughs) going to lie. You're right about that. But unfortunately, I'm going to be hanging out. Now, I shouldn't say unfortunately, because I actually like going out to the Wisconsin Muskie Expo in Wausau. It's a good show. It's always been good. The people there seem to like Team Rhino Outdoors yet, so that's a plus for us. So... You know, while I say unfortunately, it just means that I have to be on the road again for another weekend. But it'll be a fun weekend. My kids get to come up. They like it. They like the venue. They like the show. Austin likes to get beef jerky from the stand there, and that's pretty much the only reason he comes. He likes that more than his sisters and his parents. So it'll be a good weekend.
2: Well, I've heard nothing but good about that show. Same with uh, the PA show. So it should be good, Jeff. I mean, great weekend for another Muskie Expo it's a little bit of stress when it comes to the business side of it, but hopefully everybody comes out and sees it.
0: Right. That'd be great. On the, speaking of the PA show, I don't think you talked about that enough. I've, I've been recently joking with John Betty from stealth tackle, telling him this is like the stealth tackle podcast because he represents you guys at every single show that you're not at. So we talk about his company probably almost as much as we talk about our companies. So anybody that wants to check out musky mayhem tackle products, this is going to come out on a Wednesday, so three days from now, I believe it is, so it'd be, yeah, Saturday. It, the show opens on Saturday. I think it's Saturday and Sunday. Go see the Stealth Tackle booth in PA for the Musky Max show. We had Sean on a couple weeks back. I think it was on that bonus episode, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. It was on the bonus episode, so that was on uh, a Friday release, if I'm not mistaken.
0: You are correct. Too many podcasts lately. I can't keep track of them all, which I guess is a good thing for our listeners as long as they're not bored with us yet.
2: Yes. From everything I've heard from everybody out there, you know, it's really cool. We've been to the Chicago show. We've been to the Milwaukee show. It sounds like people are, are digging the podcast and hopefully that continues. I don't know. Hang on. We're going to keep going forward. That's for sure.
0: Yep. Whether you like us or not, we're still going to put them out. Hopefully you like us. And if not, yeah, we're going to put them out anyways. It's fun. Brad and I like bickering with each other, and it's always fun to give Carrie a hard time.
2: I didn't know we were giving Carrie a hard time, Jeff.
0: No, we're not. She actually gets it pretty easy aside from, you know, I mean, but again, I mean, it's easy for her because she only has to show up like once every four weeks and, you know, <laughs> put a little bit of work into it. And then, you know, she gets to have the fan club and all that stuff. So I guess being Carrie is a pretty good thing. We should probably look at getting t-shirts made. to Carrie.:. Yeah, not podcast t-shirts no 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 no. no. we were thinking like Carrie hoppy fan club t-shirts <laughs> i'm not sure i like
2: you too <laughs> yeah you do you're right i do
0: all right well unless you guys have anything else to talk about before we talk to rob i think we've bs'd for long enough let's go talk to rob
2: sounds like a plan
0: all right our guest on this week's podcast is rob Manthi. rob typically guides up in northern wisconsin he's also spent some time in canada Rob, thanks for spending some time with us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing
2: good. How are you guys? Doing really good, Rob. It's good to have you on the podcast, finally. We've tried to do this for, what, two months, maybe? Three months?
1: Yeah, it might have even been longer, but, you know, unfortunately, all of us have, you know, busy schedules, and March is a good time for everybody to get together because we're awaiting open water, or at least I am. <laughs>
2: I think we all are, Rob. <laughs> we're all just as anxious as you and probably everybody else out there. If you follow any social media, everybody's chomping at the bit to uh, to see some open water. Yeah,
1: you know, it hasn't been really that bad of a winter. I mean, you know, with the fact that, you know, my wife and I own a resort, you know, we get a lot of snowmobile traffic, so we're we like to see people, you know, in the winter time and that keeps us busy and you know, if anything of the winter just been not being able to get out ice fishing and I think that's well not not getting out ice fishing but the conditions were so bad and I think that's what made people really want to uh you know hurry up and think about open water and and I, I know that's what I usually am thinking about this time of year and you know I just start thinking about the upcoming season and go through all my tackle and organize and get ready for what I think I'm going to need to start
2: my season with you know load up the boat with all the proper tools for sure that makes perfect sense and i know just following you on instagram you must have just got your new boat here recently
1: yeah I, I i have you know it's kind of funny that 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 makes it even worse fortunate to be with london mercury and mercury was telling us all that we needed to order our motors you know back last fall so we would have them in time and somehow i got lucky and got moved to the head of the list and you know it, it really makes things difficult when you're told that your boat you know is coming at the start of february and you know you're not gonna be able to use it for a few months so when you get inside it and you know start rigging on it and placing electronics here and there and it, it doesn't it doesn't help the urge for open water that's for
2: sure <laughs> yeah it kind of starts to burn that's for sure you know what, before we really get in depth here, Rob, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of let people know who you are and what you do? Just for the listeners that maybe don't know, I mean, I'm pretty sure most people in this industry know who Rob Mantha is. Why don't you just kind of give us a little breakdown of, of who you are and what you do? Yeah, as you said, my name's Rob Mantha.
1: I live in St. Germain, which is in northern Wisconsin in Vilas County. My wife and I own St. Germain Lodge and Fripper's Restaurant and Bar. We're located on big St. Germain Lake, you know, right in the heart of, of Vilas County, basically, you know, I, I grew up fishing that area ever since I was like two years old, you know, was I think the first time I actually went fishing with my dad and, uh, you know, never thought as a kid that my love of fishing would end up being my profession. And, you know, so far so good. I mean, been at it, this will be. Oh, uh, this will be year 26 on guiding. I guide for all kinds of fish. I mean, it's not just muskies, but walleyes and bass. Over the last, oh, three, four years here, I've really kind of just trimmed it back to, you know, really wanting to concentrate more and more just strictly on muskies, you know, especially during our peak times of the of the months and, and moon phases and, and especially times of the year. Fortunate enough to... Uh, Get asked to, to do seminars at various sports shows throughout the Midwest. And, you know, anyone that probably watches any TV shows, you know, I spend six, eight times a year with John Gillespie on, on his TV show. And, and doing all that, uh, you know, is, has been, you know, really helps get your name out there and, and kind of somewhat become a household name in fishing in the state of Wisconsin. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a good ride so far.
2: That's awesome. So one of the things that you touched on there, Rob, was preparing the fish and kind of figuring out your schedule. So maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit on how you schedule your musky days.
1: Well, what I do, you know, starting, you know, almost when season's over, because like I said, you know, I've been guiding, you know, 25 years plus, And I have a lot of repeat customers and, you know, they're, they're the ones that have started, you know, saying, hey, when should we come up? You know, years ago, you know, hey, we want to fish the full moon of July or the new moon of October or whatever it might be. I basically, you know, get out of next year's calendar and mark off those moon phases—new moon, full moon—of each month that you know our our open water season is going to be open during those days. I mean, I'm only going to book musky trips. You know, I'm like I said, I'm fortunate enough I can deal with about 85% repeat customers and I know what I'm getting into but those days are are just going to be strictly set aside for muskies and and when I say new moon or full moon you know I'll pick that day whatever it might be and you know block off three days before and after so it's you know it's a good seven day window that I always like to concentrate on during those moon phases you know when you can break it down further you know we've got apps on our phones uh, that tell us, you know, moonrise, underfoot, this, that, and everything else. And you can you can kind of look ahead and say, well, you know, hey, if you, you can only make it out a half a day on this particular day. Well, let's, you know, let, let's hit the evening window because moonrise is going to be at, you know, quarter to eight and sunsets at, you know, quarter after eight. You know, that's, that's the time we want to be out there. And you can really pretty much... You know, there's no way of predicting when you're going to catch a muskie, but you can definitely predict the times that it's going to put it in your favor. And that's what I like to do a lot. You know, I just tell people if you can do it and I got it open, let's book the prime moon phases and leave it up to the weather because, you know, moon phases are great. You know, they're not magical, but you get the right weather
2: coupled with the moon phases, you know, then it does become magical. I would agree with you completely, Rob. And one of the neat things that you just touched on, too, is, you know, the day of full moon or the day of new moon is not generally the best day. It's those three days before, those three days after, generally speaking. It certainly seems
1: that way. It it really does. You know, but like I said, a lot of times, you know, I'll get, you know, seven day windows like that. You know, I can I'll get multiple days out with people you know, they might book two days, three days, whatever it might be. But yeah, you definitely see that. To me, it usually seems if you did have to lean one way or the other, the days leading up to the fuller new moon seem to be better for me than the than the days after. I mean, they're all good. But if, they're, if you had to put a gun to your head and say, which ones are the best, it always seems like the ones prior seem to be best for me.
2: I would concur with that. You know, one of the unique things that I've seen this past summer, and I don't know if you could share this as well, Rob, but We had a really weird bite where it would be like noon to 6 o'clock. And once 6 p.m. rolled around, I don't care what time sunset was, it didn't seem to happen. And for many, many weeks over this past summer, between 5.30 and 6 p.m. every day, we would at least score a fish. It was really bizarre. Boy, I can't really back that up with anything because it
1: usually seems for me, you know, if I'm going to be out on the water for a full day, you know, especially if it's a daytime, daytime trip. Unfortunately for me, that's usually in the transition time from when I'm finishing up a trip and, and starting back up. You know, if I'm going to do a, a, a double trip in a day where I, you know, squeeze in a, a full day and an a, and a evening half day, you know, I might pick up a little bit of that, you know, six o'clock-ish time per se. If I saw anything like what you just had mentioned you know i you know and you can look at a lot of pictures to to back that up if there was ever a weird time that fish got active for me last year especially when there was zero to little you know moon moon influence to me it was like right at the middle part of the day when the sun was up the highest. I never had seen something like that that was that strange. You know, usually if you're going to be dealing with a bluebird sky day, you know, you're obviously hoping for some wind and and you want the low light period. Early in the morning or evening, you know, it was strange that there was times, because I know a lot of times I'll run five hour trip in the morning, take a break and run another five hour trip in the evening. And a lot of my morning trips, got extended because just when it was about time to quit you know all of a sudden fish would start moving and we'd stay out there longer you know because I'm I'm not one of those guys I'm not going in if the fish are biting just because the time limits up you know what I'm saying so that was weird there was a lot of bites that I had and they were kind of on specific lakes I don't know if that was just indigenous to that this past year or or what I mean it, it it was it was strange on how fish when there wasn't any moon influence and you know it was also when on some of those lakes when the recreational traffic was picking up which you know again didn't make any sense but you know to to try to back up what you were saying i that that doesn't ring a bell but that that midday stuff you know during you know nothing going on certainly did for me and and i actually saw that quite a bit this past year when we uh when I was up at Eagle for a week, you know, it was at the strangest times. It wasn't following the Eagle Lake typical rule. So I guess, what does that tell us? Just be out there and fish every hour you can, right?
2: <laughs> I, I would agree with that. That's for sure.
0: So Rob, I got a couple things. First off, I want to ask you a question. It doesn't really relate to fishing so much as it does just relates to your profession. So you said you've been guiding for like 26 years and like Brad and I had a discussion earlier this afternoon about a younger kid that was wanting to get into guiding. And I just said, man, that's a really tough thing. It takes something special in order to be able to, you know, make it your career. What What do you suppose is the secret to you being around for 26 years? Because I got to tell you, that's not an easy thing, especially in this industry.
1: No, it, it isn't. You know, I get asked that a lot. I mean, you know, again, going back to the the whole, you know, resort setting and, and restaurant Obviously, we we have a lot of our resort guests that will come in, uh, you know, into the restaurant while they're on their stay, or just people in general. And you know, you'll talk to a lot of families, and you know, like, yeah, hey, you know, my twelve-year-old here watches you on TV, or 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 talk to you at a show, and he just would love to to do what you do. You know, you know, how do you go about it? And I said, well it's a tough situation you know not everybody it's not cut out for everybody i mean we've all known people had friends that wanted to guide and they got into it and three years later they're like this isn't for me and and i gotta move on you know it wasn't actually my choice it just kind of happened i mean i actually have a a a math and business degree from whitewater and and my my goal was to uh was, was to live up north you know and and was hoping to find a job nearby in the town of Wausau that I could travel back and forth from say like from Monaco three days a week and then you know allow me the freedom to fish around home whenever I wanted that was looking up for a while there and so on that's another story but it all of a sudden just happened one day when um, the original founder of Raleigh and Helens Raleigh Bessett said to me he said one day he's like man he said I could really use some help you know towards the end of Raleigh's guiding career, his arthritis and his hands got real bad. He said, hey, I got some, some good customers that I got to get out fishing and I'm just not going to be able to do it. You know, my, my hands and wrists are hurting so bad. I would take them trolling, but, you know, we can't do that anymore. You know, this was mid 90s. The trolling laws had just changed and, and were taken away. And he says, you know, no pressure. These guys know that you know what you're doing. I knew Raleigh for a long time. I grew up with two of his kids. So all of a sudden I'm like, boy, I got to take these people out. You know, I'm going to hopefully do my best. I remember that day, I think I wore them out completely because I said, we're not going in until we each catch a muskie. Got out on the water. We had a, we actually had a very good day. I can, I remember like it was yesterday, you know, Raleigh had said to me, he says, Hey, you know, in the meantime, while you're searching out or in between jobs or so on, He's like, let's, uh, let's see if we can do some of this more and see how you like it. And it just started to happen. You know, I mean, I, I fell into a good spot there. You know, I fell into a place that was, uh, obviously everybody knew about Rally and Helen's muskie shop, you know, even back in the nineties. And, you know, you had people coming in and out, you had, you know, a lot of potential customers right there. Um, that's the biggest thing, you know, is being able to have work. You can't be a guide if you don't have customers. Not everybody gets the same avenues. You know, it's hard path to, let's say, choose if you're not already somewhat connected in the industry, I think. And that's what I tell tell a lot of these young guys. is like, you know, you know, you want to do it. You may want to rethink it or you're going to have to spend some time, you know, working with somebody, you know, to, to take their overflow with somebody that, that's actually too busy that can't handle it you know, for, for especially in, in Wisconsin here, it, it requires nothing to be a guide other than $40 and, and a life There's no other, you know, per se knowledge that is required, which sometimes I don't agree with, to just say, I'm going to start up a guide business without some means behind you. It's really, it, it's tough. It is. And until you, you know, have a, a I guess, a, a proven track record and a following, you know, you may sit and struggle for a while. So, I tell them if you're going to do that, you know, you want to maybe start out doing it part time, get affiliated with a good shop or a group of guides around and have a backup plan because let's face it, it's not cut out for everybody. And to start out with, you know, you're going to be doing some, some trips that you don't want to do. I think that was the biggest thing was I was open to fish for everything. So many people that said, I'm just going to be a musky guide. I'm not going to do anything else you know, uh, and those guys, at least a few of them that I can know, or I know, and I'm not, you know, going to name anybody, you know, they didn't make it very long because they didn't want to stoop down to say fish for bass or walleye. And I think being a multi-species angler, you you know, definitely helps in the whole big scheme of things. I mean, when I'm fishing walleyes, you know, I find muskies that maybe I wouldn't think of a spot to fish and vice versa. I mean, it You know, it all goes hand in hand and you learn from, you know, you learn something every day you're out there, whether you're chasing muskies or you're chasing walleyes or you're chasing bass, it all helps in the big picture. I I really think it does.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree that anybody that wants to make a living in the sport should really definitely go around that path, like you said, and like go multi-species on it because like you said, there's it's just a lot tougher path if you just concentrate solely on muskies. And you, you limit your clientele quite a bit too. I'm sure that if you wanted to take out more walleye and bass trips, you'd have no problems finding clients for them.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, speaking of that, I mean, come September 1st, I mean, I shut it down to muskies only. You know, I started doing that last year just because I just love the month of September. You know, I, I'm not hurting for finding people that want to chase muskies in September. And, you know, the multi-species, as I call them, the multi-species month, you know, are are realistically that May, June, July time. You know, that's that's when we see a lot more families, you know, up in our part of the state here on vacation. And, you know, there might be a family of, of six or eight, and some of them want a musky fish. Some of them want to, you know, just catch some fish to eat. And, you know, it that way you're, you're guiding these families for a little bit of everything and you have to, I mean, I, I know if I would have been just strictly, you know, wanting to be, being that muskies are my favorite fish to fish for, you know, if I would have started off doing that in the, in the mid nineties into the early two thousands, there's no way I would have filled a week strictly just muskie fishing. No way.
0: So to, to break away from the fishing pot topic for a little bit, it's kind of fishing related. Nowadays, you hear a lot about Minnesota and St. Clair, but Minnesota, but Northern Wisconsin used to be like the destination. That's where people went to chase muskies. You're, since you live it and breathe it all the time, is it still a destination? Because in my opinion, that's where I'd want to be. That's like my favorite place to chase them. But are you, I mean, you you own a resort and you own the restaurant. Is Northern Wisconsin still happening as it used to be? Yeah,
1: you know, that's, I, I got I got some real good answers for that. Now, granted, you heard me say before, you know, Eagle Lake. Okay. That's where I go one week a year. Um, I used to spend a lot more time up there, uh, helping out Andy Myers Lodge with their guest instructor program. And it was just awesome. I mean, you're on a body of water that, you know, every spot could hold a big fish and, you know, it's, A musky fisherman's dream, you know, as is a lot of other bodies of water now in this day and age. But it's still fishing. These lakes that uh, are producing big fish and so on, you know, they're not magical. You still have to to fish. You still have to put your time in. But the fact of the matter is when you're out on Eagle Lake and let's just say, you know, someone in the boat hooks and loses a big fish hey, let's just go to another spot. Maybe we can find another one. You know, it doesn't happen that way in Wisconsin. Um, It's because we just are handicapped with smaller bodies of water. You know, our lakes can grow big fish, but they're a different strain of fish. And, you know, I've got several customers who do travel all over the place to fish. You know, they have gone to St. Clair. You know, they fished with me on Eagle. They've been on Lake of the Woods. You know, they may have been to Malac, you know, in the heyday type of thing all this and that set aside, one of my customers, his biggest fish has come from Lake St. Clair. You know, I wasn't with him when he caught it, but he'll tell me day in and day out, he will not trade the scenery of Northern Wisconsin, you know, the third week of October for anything. You know, there's something to be said about that. and, And I truly believe that, you know, another thing is that, you know, we see a lot of these fisheries totally Bike and fall off. Not you know. Just use that as an example on Mullet. I got to go over there and fish it sometimes in the late '90s, early 2000s, when there were you know big fish all over the place. You know Vermilion too. You were on the hot bite. You know you're you know like, acting like a musty gypsy, just following around the hot lakes. Well, I've had talks with Brad about it, where you know some of the guides in that area would be like. No, we can still catch fish on the lake, but we're not going to catch seven or eight in a day. We got to catch one or two. Oh well, we we're not going to go if we can only catch one or two. Where where does muskie fishing become, uh, you know, get away from the actual hunt versus you know we're just going to go out and put numbers in the boat? I mean that's that's the thing. You know these these fisheries may go up and down as people chase them around the country, but one thing about our neck of the woods here is it's always consistent. Yeah, you're not going to catch the, the, you know, the 55 inches that you can, you know, have opportunities at in different bodies of water, but you are always going to have a consistent fishery. And like I said, we may not grow that many 50 inch fish in a year that you see hit the net, but, you know, we get our fair share of upper 40s, you know, four footers. And believe me, I'd rather catch, um, or see a, a customer catch a, a hefty 48 incher, you know, than, than a uh, you know a skinny one that some of these other bodies of waters produce. You know, it's it's all relative. And until I see people not wanting to fish up here, I'm gonna say a day in and day out that Northern Wisconsin still is a, a great destination.
0: Yeah, I won't disagree with you. The part I like about it is that you know as well as I do, or better than I do how many different varieties of lakes there are, how many different bodies of water as far as size and structure and different stuff everywhere. So it's it just makes it for a really great place to fish just because of all the different options that you guys have up there.
1: Right. And, and yeah, and that is, I mean, one great thing is just something that pops into my brain, um, you know, wind. If, you know, you. I don't care how windy it gets. You're always going to find a place to fish can't say that about a lot of these other big bodies of water or you may have to travel a long ways to relaunch or something just to fish you know we got 1300 lakes spread out around the county uh, you're not going to have to travel more than 10 miles one direction you know to maybe find a smaller body of water to to hide out of some bad weather days or things like that or even some rivers so i mean it, it's never an issue of hey are we going to get out today because of the wind believe me i you know there's a few times that, uh, you know, I've been to some of these big waters, whether it be Green Bay or, or St. Clair or something like that. You just aren't going to get out some of those days because of, because of wind, you know, and either that or the Coast Guard doesn't let you go out. If you had a, a limited amount of vacation and you're on one of those trips and you're there to fish and you can't fish, you know, it, it, it makes it tough to think about wanting to do it again, you know, because you just don't want to get burned by the weather.
0: Absolutely. So enough about Northern Wisconsin and, and the uh, logistics of it. Let's move on to something that pretty much everybody can use. Yeah, you know, I'd say most everybody anyways. So we had talked before we started recording about preseason prep and w- the importance of it and kind of like what you go through to, to get yourself ready for the season. Since we're now late February, it'll be late February, early March when people start listening to this podcast. Let's talk a little bit about what you do to get rolling for the season.
1: Well, first thing I do is I look back at last year, I go into my guidebook, I look to see where I fished, start the season, I look at lake choices, I look at what I wrote down for water temps and, and, you know, what our weather was like and so on, make note of what lures they were chasing or biting. You know, I have quite the organizational <laughs> fishing room that I'm standing in here right now, And, you know, some people will say it's a, it's a OCD room, but I've got everything labeled. I've got a couple hundred Plano boxes of baits that that have everything labeled right down to, you know, models of the baits, the colors, the sizes. So I can always go back and, and grab that stuff. And a lot of the times is, you know, we've all been there. It was like, oh man, I'm going to such and such lake. And last year in, in July, you know, they were chasing this black and orange, showgirl and where, where did I put it I can't find it you know and you're scrambling looking for these baits and you know sometimes you don't have that time to dig around and look for everything and it's always good to have where you can where you have a, a filing system to where you can find these, you know find your go-to baits and have them organized and you know that's that's what I like you know using the system I have because I can find you know if I'm looking for a certain bait whether it be a topwater or a a little twitch bait or a jerk bait or something—it is right there in front of my face. You know, I'll have notes made that okay. I know th- these are th- these five boxes right here are baits that have been tried and true. You know, for me in the spring for our bodies of water, go through those lures that you're going to start off the year with. You know, check the hooks. You know, do you have a do you have one that you've sharpened a little bit too much and it needs replacing? You know, or the split ring might look a little a little unsafe go through that stuff, you know, tune them up, get them ready to go. So you're not doing this stuff out in the boat. You know, when you're out in the boat, you know, let's face it. A lot of times musty feeding windows aren't that big and, and you don't want to be wasting time redoing a bait or getting it to, to work the way you want it to. Um, a lot of that stuff you can, you can do this time of year, you know, maybe you gotta replace some shrink tubing on a, on a bucktail or something. Or, or even retie one, you know. And sometimes, you know, there's a certain there's a certain rhyme or reason why one lure works so much better than the other, and and you might, you know, be able to sit and figure that out and and mimic it. You know, I've seen that and asked Brad about that a lot of times with his baits. It's like, ah, oh, I got this double nine that just kicks butt on everything else, but why is it? You know, and then you notice that well, maybe that one clevis is closed a little bit more and it causes that blade to hit the other blade goofy or something like that and you know you can try to mimic that that's what's kind of nice too about having a a hotel right here in town with a swimming pool because you know a lot of times i'll go over there and cast some lures in their pool and and you know you get to see what they look like and if it doesn't look right go back to the drawing board and, and remake it retie it whatever You know, that's another neat thing. You know, I don't have access to any open water this time of year, but nothing's better than a swimming pool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you got that right, Rob. That's one of the things that we have troubles with here, you know, during the winter. We do have that option, just like you do with a hotel nearby. So we can, I think you got to pay like 10 bucks or whatever, but at least you can get in the door there and you can test some baits. Otherwise, we, we got a couple little rivers that stay open for the most part throughout the winter. Definitely running out there, checking something. I think it's a it's a great way to tune your baits, like you're saying. So why don't we shift into kind of you know, you talked a little bit briefly about what you're gonna do that first month of the season, Rob.
1: Month of the season, you know, this year actually of several winters in a row, you know, we may knock on wood have a normal to earlier than normal ice out. You know, God willing we have the right kind of spring leading up to it, you know, we may have a a good start to our our muskie season. You know, here in northern Wisconsin, we don't open until Memorial weekend. You know, we do have some opportunities at at boundary waters. However, I think before I speak, I I think we might be up for some rule changes. So that might not even actually get to happen. Because with Michigan, we could always fish the boundary waters on the 15th. I know lakes right in Michigan, you know, now are open year round. With that being said, you know, there might be, there might be opportunities for, you know, some, you know, early season uh, uh, chasing the muskies. Just talking about our lakes in general, I'm I'm really hoping that things go as planned. And, you know, we, you know, we, we've obviously are sitting in here in the heart of winter right now and have, have tons of snow here on the ground. And, And we have ice, but the ice isn't good. So it's not solid ice like we've had in the past. So when it does go, it's going to go quick. And, you know, we get that early April ice out and we get sun, you know, things get accelerated pretty quick. And and that goes back to talking a little bit about, you know, fishing for other fish. A lot of the lakes that I'm chasing walleyes before muskie season opens, you know, obviously have muskies in them. And I'm getting to see what those fish are doing every day up until musky season you know they they start chasing walleyes back to the boat on may 20th when you're reeling in a walleye a tells me that that muskie's is getting aggressive and it wants to start feeding and b you know they're chasing a 15 16 inch walleye they're not looking for a small bait i see muskies start chasing walleyes or smallmouth or something like that back to the boat i'm i'm gonna start my season off with some larger than normal quote-unquote spring baits because if that's what they're wanting to chase you want to match the hatch and if they're chasing bigger stuff why wouldn't you want to start fishing bigger stuff right off the get-go you know and not always you know we, we see so much about the small bait spring time scenario that goes hand in hand and it doesn't happen that way every year uh, you know i've seen that in in other years where we've had real early ice outs and and you know you, you never even started off the year you know, throwing smaller lures, and you just jumped right into your, your full-size arsenal, not saying double tens or, or you know, a 10-inch Jake, but, you know, a 9-inch a sewick or a 7-inch Grandma or something like that. And I actually would prefer that to happen every year because I just, it just, for me, sometimes it's just hard to throw smaller baits for these fish. It just doesn't feel right, you
2: know? I would agree with that, Rob, and I've always been a big bait guy. And one of the things that I think, you know, kind of going against the grain, if you will, big baits sometimes can produce better than small baits in the spring. When you just factor in, everybody else is out there using small stuff. Right, right. You know, and then conversely,
1: I mean, if you do have a cold spring, you know, the water temps are are behind and so on. One thing I try to tell people, don't rule it out just because it doesn't feel right. You know, and and it's a, a northern Wisconsin tradition in the fall to use live bait, you know, while you're casting, I mean, it works just as good in the spring. You know, the hardest thing is is finding someone that can supply you with suckers because a lot of times springtime you're equated with high water. These creeks are high, the rivers are high and the bait guys just can't consistently trap them. So, I mean, if there's bait available and the water temps are conducive for it, I'll do it every spring. It's a great approach that should not ever be ruled out. It's just hard for a lot of anglers to think about, well, live bait in spring, that just doesn't seem right because it's not, you know, the, the, it's not the month of October or the end of September or something like that. But, you know, you've really got to broaden your horizons there a little bit and, and think about it spring and fall.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. We filmed the video probably, I don't know, two years ago or so, Steve Jensen and I, and that's one thing that he always does is just runs live bait in the spring. He's like, you know, a lot of people don't do it. And there, you know, like you said, it can be difficult to acquire, but he's like, we, I mean, it saved our day a couple times we were doing it. So for sure, something to look at. Yes, it is. So Jeff,
2: you know, one of the things that uh, we had happen, I don't even know how long ago this was, but there were some questions that uh, some of the listeners had and Rob jumped in there. I think it was on Facebook, if I'm not mistaken, correct?
0: It was. Yep.
2: Should we kind of go that direction at this point?
0: Sure let's uh let's fire a couple questions away to Rob. One of the uh, questions we had is do some lakes not have a top water bite? So in your opinion, do some lakes not have a top water bite?
1: I don't agree with that. Obviously, there's certain bodies of water that do have a better top water bite than others just because of their physical makeup, you know whether they they might be very shallow, thick vegetation and you just are limited to lure choices. But man, I, you know, we have all shapes and sizes of lakes around here from, you know, dark river water lakes to flowages to deep Cisco based lakes. I would have to really think hard and long to try to come up with a body of water of which, like I said, we've got 1300 lakes in our county that have muskies in them. Well, you know, I haven't fished them all. It's almost impossible to say you could. But I would almost find it impossibly keeping track somewhat very, very tightly year after year after year that I could come up with a body of water that would say, no, do not throw that fat bastard or that hog wobbler or that top raider on this lake because you are just not going to catch a fish. I mean, yeah, you're not going to go out on Trout Lake at high noon, dead calm and sunny and, and expect results from that but there are times and places on that body of water where top water is going to be effective. I just don't think that that's an accurate statement. It might be time of year. It it might have been a a situational current bite going on that maybe someone just didn't experience topwater activity. You know, you always hear the old-timers say, well, the baby ducks are swimming around on the lake, so now it's time to throw topwater. Well, if you usually wait that long, you know, there, there's topwater bites happening already. Same thing going into early fall. My definition between a topwater and a bucktail is it's the same type of lure. Basically, all they are is about a foot difference in the water column. If they're going to chase a bucktail on that body of water, they'll bite a topwater on that body of water. They're always in my boat, depending upon lighting conditions and so on. It's a daily used lure or tool, however you want to say it. I would disagree that lakes that, you know, to say a lake does not have a topwater bite.
2: That's interesting, Rob. You know, and one of the things that I think a lot of people don't consider when it comes to topwater is there's tons of different choices. You know, you mentioned one, a hog bobbler, something that you really don't hear a whole lot about. You know, it's a slower moving bait. You have that style of topwater. You have a pacemaker where it's actually clicking. There's mechanical noise. There's more just a plopping noise. There's tons of different topwaters out there. Can you maybe go in a little bit in depth on where you use those and what choices you use? Oh, sure. I mean, you're, you're exactly
1: right. There's so many different topwaters out there these days. There's definitely certain times of the year that, that one shine on certain bodies of water versus others. You know, for instance, you go up to Eagle Lake on the, on the opener of Canadian season, third week of June. Probably one of the best baits that you could throw out there under conditions, you know, is is a walk-the-dog style topwater bait, you know, like a a dock or, uh, you know, anything similar to that. Those type of baits really get those fish going. And I think it's because maybe the fish aren't super aggressive depending upon the year and spawn, but it's a slow-moving bait. The fish are shallow. You can cover a lot of area. It's just that zigzag action. The bait's working a lot back and forth, but you're not covering a lot of water. You know, the fish get time to see it, hunted down, and, you know, you might trip them to bite. Now, you could be throwing a pacemaker or a Dr. Evil or twin teaser tail or something that makes all kinds of rackets, and you think it might be better, but it might be moving a little bit too fast for them. It's the same thing with a lot of these slow-moving baits that you might use that theory once you get into the, the summer months um, and warmer water temps. There's nothing that I love better during the full moon. Let's just paint the situation here. Let, let's say it's, it's full moon and you're approaching, getting close to dark. Maybe, maybe you already have cloud cover going on and it's just, uh, you know, you're getting extra low light period of time out there and you, uh, you have humid conditions. In, in my neck of the woods here, there is nothing better than a creeper style or hog wobbler that's just moving very slowly. It's something about the heat and humidity that those baits shine for me over a faster moving prop style bait. That's the stuff that you pick up and learn over the years from trial and error. It's amazing what those baits will do in those conditions. And, and, and another thing, you know, they're great for the slow ones are great for after dark. I'm I'm not a big topwater guy after dark, but if I had to have a choice of one, I'd want it slower. I mean, muskies aren't feeding with their eyes after dark. You know, they're using their lateral lines, and you know, more often than not, you know, when it is after dark, if fish do go after a surface bait, you end up missing quite a few of them because they just flat out miss the bait. It's Nothing the angler did. It's just they miss the bait. You know, they you know the surface is an edge. And you know they came up to hit it, and you know misjudged it. Whatever, that's where crankbaits or, or big blades give them a better target, and they can zoom in on that. And that you know the the, the knocking of a of a jointed crankbait or or the the noise that you know some big blades pushing through the water. You know they pick that up with their lateral line so much better, and find that bait a lot easier, and and you know crush it. Yeah, top water you know, I, I think a lot of times too, a lot of people I see, especially beginner anglers, are fishing a lot of these top water baits too fast, and I think that might be part of their reasons where they're thinking they're not getting a, a you know a top water bite on a certain lake. You know, not saying that a muskie couldn't chase it down, but maybe moving it too quickly is just creating a, a unnatural sound or the bait just doesn't appear that well on the surface. Or it's rolling around or or just not doing what it should do you know that goes with anything though but i i mean i'm just trying to think of why someone might think that they don't have a topwater bite and a lot of times it's just the little things like that that make that makes the difference between a, a bite a follow or a hookup
2: i agree with that rob all topwater baits aren't created equal that's for sure and in my opinion over the years you know you think about what makes muskies bite i think number one is weather but Number two comes really close behind that with speed of retrieval. So it's something that everybody should think about when they're out there using a topwater. Be creative. You know, if you need to slow things down, there's other options. So definitely like like what your answer was there. Is there another one, Jeff? Another question?
0: Well, sticking on topwater stuff, the next one would be just uh, general tips for catching fish on topwater baits. You got any? I know you kind of offered a little bit there. Do you have anything else that you can add to some tips on? on fishing a topwater bait? Because I know they're definitely, each guide has their own nuances on how they work a topwater bait.
1: Well, yeah. I, I mean, it, it can start with your equipment. Don't go out throwing a topwater bait, you know, with the same rod that you're going to be throwing pounder bulldogs with. I like to have eight and a half foot, nine foot, you know, medium heavy rod, a tip that's, that's got a little play in it. Because let's face it, most of these topwater baits aren't that big. You know, I always try to tell people if I've got somebody in the boat and they maybe have very little musky experience, um, but they're, you know, they want to learn everything they possibly can, I'll say, show me what you think is right. And then let's go from there. You know, I'm not going to tell you my, my reasons are the gospel, but I'm going to offer you some advice if I don't think you're doing what you should be doing. A lot of times I'll see people throw out a topwater bait. A, they start reeling it in too fast. They might not, you know, have their rod tip in the right spot, which I tell every, in in my boat, you're reeling in a bait, you're working a jerk bait, you're twitching a minnow, whatever it might be. I want your rod tip pointed right at the lure. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And if your rod tip's pointed at the bait, you're going to have minimal slack when a fish hits and everything is, is right. You know, if you're, if your body is turned at you know a 90 to the lure and you're wanting to set the hook, you, you have very limited range of where you can go with that. Proper stance and retrieve means a lot. And I'll watch a lot of people will bring in their topwater bait and they'll have their rod tip say, six inches off the surface, and you have all this line out on the water. Well, some of these topwater baits, just the way that they've been made and the way the bait manufacturer uh, has, has weighted the lure either maybe ride right through the surface or stay up high you have that line dragging on the surface it might pull that bait under the water a little bit you know therefore changing the sound of it changing how it appears in the water and that was not maybe the way that particular lure was designed to be retrieved so I always like to have the rod parallel uh, to the water surface at start I'll say, okay, now look, you, you might have, you got the bait in the water and you might have the leader and or a couple feet of line that is actually in the lake itself as you're bringing it in. And as you're retrieving the bait and your distance from the lure to the boat getting closer, slowly lower that rod tip, you know, so you create that level plane as you retrieve. And that way you'll have consistent action on that bait all the way back to the boat. And then, of course, you know, obviously be watching behind it at all times because, you know, we've all seen muskies wake up on topwater baits, and then, you know, you got to play the cat-and-mouse game to trigger them to bite. But also, if one comes in and it's a subsurface follow, say it might be a foot and a half underneath that bait, that fish has no idea that there's this bait's being retrieved back to a boat. It's just chasing it down. And as you're lowering that rod tip close to the water's edge, you know, you're in perfect position to take that bait underwater down to that fish and do a figure eight. You know, you don't have to do a figure eight with a topwater bait on top. I mean, there's times where, I've, you know, if that fish is high in the water column and these tail's kicking out of the water, I'll tell people keep that bait on the surface, make a big oval. And if you can't get them to commit on an outer turn, you know, then maybe take it under and see if it can change its mind. You know, those are all, you know, those different styles of retrieve per selected topwater bait. You know, they make a difference. A lot of other things I tell people is cast that bait out, retrieve it, use your ears, listen to it. Is it making the right sound? Is the tail not spinning because it picked up a piece of grass? Or did the hook get followed up on the blade and it's not working? In the same token, kind of daydream. Because if you watch a muskie strike that bait and set the hook, on site more often than not you're going to miss that fish and and that's where that little left stiff of a rod tip you know helps you out where i'll tell people daydream you want to watch the eagle flying overhead you know here, here's a bait for you to do that because by the time that explosion happens 20 30 30 yards out in front of you and all of a sudden you realize something happened you're going to feel the weight of that fish and you're going to know to set the hook but if you the hook upon sight or that fish makes the movement towards the bait it might be six feet behind it and it surges up to hit it and someone sees that that's not experienced they think that the the disturbance on the water was the fish the lure and you know the, the bait comes flying back to the boat and the fish never even touched it so it's kind of it's kind of a good lure for people that just aren't always paying attention because if you tell them it's okay to do that more often than not, they'll, they'll hook up on those fish and, and having that little bit lighter tip, I think saves a lot of missed opportunities.
0: It's funny that you talk about not paying attention because the one strike, the top water strike is like the greatest strike to watch. But like you said, if you're watching it more often than not, you're going to see that fish come up and, and splash and miss or whatever, and you're going to pull the bait out of its mouth. So I definitely agree with you on that. I think that's a great tip for, for people is to, like you said, it's an awesome strike to watch it, but It's not any good if you actually see it.
1: The strikes that happen when you don't see that fish following and they just come from the side and blast it. I mean, you could do just about everything wrong and you're still going to end up with that bait in the fish's mouth because when they come from a a 90 from the side, they have one intention and that's to kill it. And they mean business. You know, a lot of times when they come up behind it and they're waking it, you know, they, they just nip it.
0: So Rob, one of the other questions we had was, what does networking electronics do? Brad and I and Carrie, we talk about electronics all the time on here. One thing we don't talk about is networking. You want to shine a little light on what networking electronics does?
1: It really depends upon brand, you know, what you like. I mean, I've, there's several manufacturers out there, you know, Hummingbird, Lorant, Garmin, so be it. You know, I use Lowrance. I always, since it's been available, have always networked all my all my stuff. You know, being that I'm on the water guiding every day. I fish out of the back of the boat. I'm never in the front of the boat. I'm running the boat from the back. Generally, I'm in a 20 or 21-foot boat. I have all my electronics in the back of the boat. I will run two graphs, sometimes three, but typically two side by side, and I will have those networked together. I will have one graph that is hooked up to my bow mount, and then I will have, obviously, my back transducer on a graph. And then, you know, now with side imaging and so on, you know, you have that transducer hooked up also. I'm going to play around with the live imaging and stuff this year, but that's a whole nother question and, and discussion because that's just too much. The fact of the matter, when it boils down to it in muskie fishing success, fishing in general, is boat control. You know, you might have 10 waypoints from somebody that said, you got to go fish these spots because this is where we always catch fish. But if you're not fishing the spots correctly or running the contours correctly, those waypoints or or spots mean nothing. And, you know, when you have a lot of irregular breaks or a really jagged weed edge and you really are trying to say, let's say, for example, you have a a lake that the weed line is cut and dried at 12 foot. But outside that twelve foot, it, it might not be the perfect forty five degree angle drop at all times, and you know you're wanting to stay on that weed edge. Having the ability to look at two screens simultaneously, with one of them being the front of the boat and one being the back of the boat, and you're manually running that trolling motor. Like what I will do is I'll set my ToroVa on autopilot and set. Speed given the the wind and so on, um, and what type of baits that we're fishing. And I'll just use the left and right arrow to cut in or cut out. Well, with that front transducer on that trolling motor, it's given me a 20 foot warning of what's ahead. If I'm going along and both graphs are reading, let's say, you know, 14 feet, so I know we're just outside the weed edge, and I got the guy in the bow of the boat working perfectly parallel on the weed edge i've got the guy in the middle and the guy and myself in the back casting over the weed you know i know the boat's in perfect position well all of a sudden maybe we're going to come up to a weed point and i see the front of the boat you know i'm looking at that graph and i see that you know we're going 14 13 12 and a half 11 10 i know i'm starting to creep up i want to you know hit that point at the same depth i've, I've got a 20 foot warning to start turning my boat out to the right as I'm fishing left to right. And if I didn't have that network system and I was just looking at my back graph, you know, that bow of the boat might be right on top of that point by the time I see the depth change in the back of the boat and you just miss the crucial inside turn. So having that system network like that with two graphs, you know, gives you the ultimate view of what's going on. Ahead of you, below you, to the left of you. And it makes all the world of difference when it comes to bolt control. And like I said, that is the biggest thing. You could be the best jerkbait working person you've ever seen, but if the bait's not landing where it needs to be, you know, you're know you not going to catch as many fish as if you did. That lure was in position on every cast. Having your draft network that way to where they can share information and see everything around you, you know, there's other things too, when their network, you know, you're, you're sharing maps and, and everything else. It's just the way that, you know, everybody should take a look at rigging their boat. And, you know, I, it, it, it would be so hard for me. I'm so used to it to, you know, to hop in a boat and, and fish with just one graph because, um, you get spoiled at how well it allows you to maneuver, position the boat and, and put yourself in the place that you need to be to catch fish.
2: I totally agree with that whole concept, Rob. I personally don't network my units, but I do have my depth at my feet when I'm guiding out of the back of the boat from my bow mount. And the reason I do that is the exact same reason that you are, but I I leave them separate. And so I'm not networking, actually, but just another concept for people out there that are listening. You aren't networking, but you are because you're running multiple screens. You're just got them dedicated and
1: doing what, you know, what you need to do. The reason that I do like the networking system is if there ever is that opportunity where there's the, uh, the buddy day out fishing, and you do actually get the bow of the boat, I can do the same thing. I can look at the bow graph, flip flop it back and, and split screen it. And I can see the back of the boat, front of the boat from the front. And, you know, that way I'm doing the same thing. I'm just at the other end of the boat, you know, and, and those days aren't too often, but It is, it is nice to have, have all those different views just by, you know, changing up some of your menu screens.
2: Hey, Rob, when you're networked too, can you, you basically can mark waypoints on either machine and they show up on both, correct?
1: Right. Yep. I'm not going to say for sure on every manufacturer, but you know, most of them, I do believe have the waypoint sharing. So if you were, let's just say, you know, working as a team, someone said, Hey, I just had a follow here and, and you know, maybe you're changing a bait or something and you're like, Hey, hit waypoint. You know, that waypoint doesn't matter what draft you push it, it's gonna get saved on all aspects, um, and all screens. So no matter what, you know, when you go back to revisit it, if the guy in the bow of the boat hit the waypoint for me because I was doing something, you know, it appears back on my screen. So yes, it's right there and you can go right back and duplicate that same run and you know, put yourself within feet of where you were when you first encounter the fish.
0: So Rob, typically one question we've asked a lot in the earlier podcasts that we've kind of gotten away from is patterning. I know a lot of guys, and especially in muskies, patterning can be the the key to being consistent on the water. And so let's just say you were on a pattern yesterday, you were catching them on bucktails or you were catching them on topwater. It doesn't really matter what you were catching them on. And now it's day, you know, the next day and you've fished for three, four hours, How long is it before you're going to try to cut bait on that pattern and try to find something new? Or is it just that, you know, that day they're just off? Can you shed a little bit of light on how long you stick with a pattern?
1: When you're out every day, you know, you you see, like you said, you see certain patterns evolve. And, you know, it's great when everything works the same day after day after day. Obviously, there's weather that comes into play that changes that could be boat traffic it could be a a number of things that change that but if let's say for instance you know yesterday yeah we're out we're fishing generic weed edges and the fish are coming off a weed edge guys ask you know how'd you do yesterday well you know we did this we did that we saw this you know matter of fact i got a couple waypoints up we're coming up here where you know we moved a few fish couldn't get them to bite but Let's see, they came up on a Tennessee Shad Jake and, you know, a a Cisco-colored bulldog, whatever. That's why we're throwing this stuff right now. And if I go through that spot where I saw these fish react to those baits, I don't have anything happen on that first try, especially if it's the start of the day. I don't get too upset about it because, okay, yesterday these fish were moving when it was, you know, we, we, we were coming into, you know, moon set. Well, today, the timing's different. You know, it might be 45 minutes off, but we're going back on these fish because they were the hot fish that we had going yesterday. They just didn't commit. I won't abandon a pattern until I've seen what was working for me not work during what I think is the best part of the day. You could go and fish a spot that has fish on it. And if they're not active, it doesn't matter what you throw at them. They're not going to move. But if the stuff that's working for you day in and day out didn't work during what I deemed as the right time to be there, then that's when it's time to switch. You know, maybe we got to go back, fish them a little shallower. Maybe those fish move to the inside weed edge, or maybe, you know, maybe they're right in the heart of it and you got to root them out. I, I won't abandon ship until the peak time of the day has come and gone and nothing's working. You know, we've seen that, you know, and you've heard the phrase was the pattern was there was no pattern. You know, we caught a fish deep, we caught a fish shallow, we caught a fish off weeds, we caught a fish off rock. When things don't work, when you think they should be working or they had been working, I'll stick it out until I think it's not right and then start reevaluating and trying new things. And and if it means staying out there a little bit longer to try to refigure something out, I will. You know, you also got to look at those patterns of, is it the same type of wind? Is it the same direction? Is it, you know, is everything the same? Is it that the reason why those fish are there? Chances are they didn't move too far. They just moved a little bit from what they were. And I, I think it just means a lot to go back and duplicate what you did until it doesn't work for you and then switch. You know, first spot of the day, if they were hitting black and orange and, you know, nothing happens on black and orange on the first spot that's not enough time to say okay abandon shift. let's try something else you know you, you can't do it that way and, and i think that's where a lot of people do make mistakes you know you get too many bait changers out there and a lot of times that's not the way to do it you know stick with what was working for you until proven otherwise
0: i'd say that's you know great advice for any musky angler So Rob, as we talked about, we'd love to have you back on in the next, say, month and a half before things get really fired up in in the guide service and you're busy and you don't have time for us anymore. I know there's a lot of topics that we had kind of briefly touched over tonight, but we didn't get them all the way done. Boat control would obviously be a big one. I know you mentioned that you talked about looking back on your logs, and that's something that I'd like to maybe go in a little bit more detail. And even there, you just talked about you know, you want to look at like, what was the best part of the day? And, you know, some people, you know, you and me and Brad, Carrie, we might kind of have a pretty good idea on like, what is the best part of the day, but not every angler listening to this even knows what that part of the day is. So maybe that's another topic that we want to touch on. But for the sake of this podcast, we just want to thank you for coming out. So if anybody's looking to get in touch with you, book a trip, check you out, learn more about you, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: Probably to just revert to my website. It's just, it's real simple. It's just, www.robmanthei.com it's pretty straightforward explains the options of what you could do to set up a trip there's a contact form all my contact information is on there I'm checking my computer every day that's probably the easiest way
2: to get me is just via my website
0: Brad and Carrie, you want to talk a little bit about Musky Mayhem Tackle?
2: I think we should let Carrie talk I, I, she didn't get much in this time
0: no, it's because we stayed away from bluegills, and we were strictly to muskies today, so she had nothing to offer.
2: I do know how to fish muskies also, Jeff.
0: I know. You can probably catch more than I can in bigger fish. That's, I know that. I just give you a hard time, all right?
2: I, I probably have caught more bigger fish than you have.
0: I, gar- I guarantee it. You probably <laughs> caught more <laughs> bigger fish than me last year.
2: I only caught one fish
0: last year. That's probably still bigger than the one—the biggest one I caught last year, so. It
2: might be. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Listen to YouTube, battle. <laughs>
0: I gave it all oh. to her. I I mean, I, I didn't even battle. I let her win right away. I just put my hands up, waved the white flag. She wins.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's all good. All right. Um, so if you're looking to find Musky Mayhem Tackle products or even just info about Musky Mayhem Tackle, you can go to muskymayhemtackle.com or you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh we do have some videos on youtube we will probably have a few more coming out here in the next few weeks every thursday we are going to put some of the old videos that we did years ago out every thursday morning so i think tomorrow morning actually will be segment two of big blades big muskies so every thursday we're going to do that we're going to burn up all the old footage and try to get it out on YouTube. It's a little dated but there's a ton of fish catching. There's a few things that people can learn there as well. So check it out.
1: Video out there too of a hook removal. Ah,
2: that is in the um, an outtakes video that came out a few, what it would be like sometime in January. There's a Rob Mantai getting a hook removed from his hand.
1: Dang it, I didn't didn't see that.
2: You'll have to go to YouTube and check it out.
1: Look at the outtakes video. Okay. I'm sure there's no audio associated.
2: There (laughs) wasn't audio. And the reason there wasn't audio is we were running lapel mics and you were down in the boat doing something, Rob. I don't remember exactly. You were getting prepared to go back out for that evening bite and somehow you ended up hooked. I don't even know how it actually happened. Oh, I
1: I know how it happened. It's because, you know, Herbie says, well, we only got to bring these six baits, which he meant six to the power of six. So there was way too many lures hanging in that Lakewood pedestal pal. And I think when I reached around to grab something, yeah, one of them found my hand and and I set the hook with my
2: hand as I swung it around before we even left the dock. (laughs) That's how it happened. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Unfortunately, that audio wasn't there, but uh, maybe our listeners probably wouldn't want to hear all the words that were coming out. Maybe it would have been priceless to, (laughs) <laughs> Every everybody's had
1: that or been around that, and, and they know it, it's not uh, an easy thing to not uh, to not use uh, some inappropriate language. But uh, it, it might have made that the wording and so on. I think would have been would have
2: been more comical than than <laughs> than harmful. But it, yeah, you, you had to be there, right? <laughs> I think some of the funniest part of that whole deal is watching Herbie with the knife. And he's trying to cut, trying to cut your finger or whatever. And it looks like he's operating a saw instead of a knife. He's like going back and forth. And I'm just like, Oh man. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't a knife. I think, I think
1: all it was, was just a piece of steel that was in that folding knife that used to be a blade at some point, you know, cause it was <laughs> not sharp.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. That's valid. I can, I can only imagine, but, uh, No, crazy. I didn't mean to interrupt Carrie, but it it was worthy of talking about. You got to go check it out. All
1: right. I'll I'll find it.
2: Just go to our YouTube channel, Rob, and you'll find it there.
0: Okay. Wrapping up for Backlash Podcast, you can find us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and most of the time, you can find us on YouTube. New episodes have been showing up there, too. If you want to, you can get in touch with Backlash Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. You can also email us, BacklashPodcast at gmail.com. And then for Team Rhino Outdoors, the best way to get in touch there would be TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. You can find our entire selection of everything that we have to offer in the muskie world. You can find Team Rhino Outdoors on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a YouTube channel, and we've actually been putting some consistent content up on, on YouTube from the stuff that we had done last summer. If you're looking to come out and see us, Wisconsin Muskie Expo is this weekend. might be over if you're listening to this one late. The other thing that Carrie and Brad forgot to mention is if you you want Muskie Mayhem Tackle products, go check out the Stealth Tackle booth at the Muskie Max show in Pennsylvania. So if you're on the eastern side of the United States, go check it out. And once again, Brad, Carrie, we want to thank you for coming out. And of course, Rob, we want to thank you for spending some time with us tonight. And hopefully we'll talk to you again in the next, uh, I don't know, a few weeks or so. So Thanks again, Rob. We really appreciate it.
2: All right. Always a pleasure. It was good stuff, Rob. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Not a problem. Now you can get back to tying dates, right? Yep.